watchers in the fourth dimension. Oh, what a cursed place this is. Oh, it's like a cemetery, it's so quiet. Why do you come now? Hello, you are listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And we know that from the roof comes hate, the liquid death. <laughs> uh, so this time we are talking about that famous First Doctor era story, The Web Planet. Getting started with a brief rundown on behind the scenes with this one. This particular story was written by Bill Strutton, and this is his first and only Doctor Who credit. He was never actually invited back. He did the usual 60s Doctor Who writer rotation, having also done The Avengers, The Saint, Emergency Ward 10, Paul Temple, etc, etc. This story was commissioned by Verity Lambert because she was looking for a monster to rival the Daleks. Uh, Strutton came forward with an idea around giant venom-spraying ants and was commissioned to write a six-part story without even having given the BBC a storyline. The BBC were so keen to push the Zabi as the new Daleks that they actually arranged a photo call of them doing things like queuing for a bus and dropping in for lunch at a cafe. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of direction, this one sees the return of Richard Martin. This is his fourth of five directorial jobs on Doctor Who. The immediate previous one having been the Dalek invasion of Earth. This story had no actual composer assigned to it, so all the incidental music came from pre-existing recordings by a troupe called Le Structure Sonore. The designer on this one was John Wood, and this was his first contribution to Doctor Who. He will go on to be on the show three more times, all in the Hartnell era. Anyone who's actually watched this won't be surprised to learn that it was a rather troubled production. It had absolutely nowhere the budget it needed, the Zabi props were very cumbersome and frequently broke during filming, and if you watch carefully in one of the episodes, one of them actually runs into a camera and you get a wonderful view of the ceiling. And then likewise, the Monoptera also had a lot of issues with their costumes, particularly during the scenes where they had to fly. Difficult production here. We're going to move on to our short summary, which this time round is in the hands of Riley. The TARDIS crew gets pulled into a 1980s raid insecticide commercial where the moths and grubs are enslaved by the ants who have been mind-controlled by a smooth-talking spider. The crew is separated, and on their journey they deal with new allies, daring escapes, and intense battles. Eventually, they all meet up in the end to witness Barbara do an epic one-handed dunk of the isotope into the spider, causing it to melt away. The insects rejoice and hop around happily. The end. That pretty much sums up how batshit insane this story is. <laughs> so, are we done? <laughs> <laughs> that was it, folks. So this week is going to be Riley versus Julie. Round one. <sighs> ding, ding. Fight! <laughs> so let's get started, as we always do, at the beginning with the web planet. Oh, convenient. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but you said the writer was Bill Strutton. Yep. That, that is actually a pen name for Garth Marenghi. I hadn't realized that. If you have seen Dark Place, suddenly this entire serial makes a lot more sense. Starting off in this episode, I really just love Barbara just strolling around, getting her drink on, you know, just walking around <laughs> the TARDIS. I'm loving it. It's just great. She's fabulous. She's absolutely great in this. And Vicky got her Kermit the Frog collar back. That was nice. I love that outfit. I'm sorry. I, I realize it might not be the most popular. I love it. It it I just it's synonymous with Vicky for me. 
And Ian got a new jacket, so it's just fashion all around. Speaking of Ian's fashion, did anyone else crack up when it turned out that he was holding his trousers up with his tie? I actually have a no I'm like, why is he why doesn't he have a belt? Why is he using his old school tie? Damn good question. Also, I thought um, what was very interesting is when the uh, doctor and Ian were to go out and explore, the doctor tells Barbara, don't worry, I won't let him out of my sight. And he's acting, uh, there was like a, a slight confusion where I think we're led to believe that Barbara was concerned about the both of them, where I think Barbara is starting to show a lot more concern just specifically for Ian, which goes back to our theory from the Romans. Yeah, they're definitely being shipped. But that yeah. was also one of my favorite scenes of this first one where we, we first see the special lens with Vaseline smeared on it and the doctor's ice cream man outfit. <laughs> it was great. And also the, don't forget, not just the Vaseline smeared lens, which now we think of when we see that, we think of like daytime television or I don't know if they do that anymore in daytime television. They did back in the seventies and eighties. Um, uh, like soft focus. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think of Star Trek whenever there was someone that Kirk was was hitting on. Oh right, they, they put that gla- the, like that. Yeah, it's it's interesting that gl- it's like a glamour glaze thing. That is some that is a technique. I don't know who was the last person that have that treatment before. I know that it was rumored to have been done with Joan Collins in the 1980s on television. I think she was on Dynasty or Falcon Crest. Anyway, I do know specifically in film, that actual technique was also used on Doris Day. I remember watching a film with her that was late 60s, early 70s, in which they were also doing that. Not as severe as it is in this serial, but definitely, obviously, there. I was going to say, it makes sense, just because Barbara is clearly as glamorous as Doris Day. (laughs) The other thing, the other aspect uh, on the planet is the the sound effect. The Atari? Yeah. That's uh, on the voices. It's uh, oh, that's a nice touch. I mean, oh, you mean the echo? To... The echo yeah, when they're echo. speaking. Echo. Okay, I thought yeah. you meant the the zarby. I liked it, but I thought they made it less pronounced as the serial went forward. So it was something I noticed in the first episode, and then it just kind of seemed to die away. I try to focus on when they were keeping up with it, and it's like it it was any time you were not in an enclosed space and on the planet. If you're on the planet's surface, not in a cave or in the animus's lair or anything like that then you you didn't have it but when you're out there you did have it i think that's one thing this story does really really well is selling the concept of an alien world so this is the first time we have the tardis crew needing special gear to go out out outside this oh, is that gear oh it's oh, sexy boy. but to, <laughs> and then there's the vaseline lens as riley mentioned and the echo it to, to me it just actually says Yes, this is a completely alien planet that is different to anything we're used to. And we also get we also get Zombarbara, which is pretty cool. <laughs> That's true. Outside of maybe the Dalek, the first Dalek serial, this is an episode where it's like, you know, we are really pushing boundaries as to like this is alien. This is going to be weird. This is going to be unusual because this is what, you know, this is, you know, we're going past your, you know, your imagination. We're going as far out as possible. And then we get, oh, Vicky isn't feeling well, so I'm going to give her a sedative. And by the way, Advil is a sedative. <laughs> it was just aspirin. All right. Wasn't it just aspirin? Just... Sorry. Yeah. Yes, aspirin. Yeah. Some medication beginning with an A. 
Yeah. Something like that. You know, acetaminophen, what, whichever one. It, it was just like, all right, so we're going to make this real alien, but we're just going to get our medication wrong. Someone did not do the research. <laughs> too busy, like, looking up, you know, Zarpy mythology and lore. That's why you couldn't the do it. The only thing but, so- you need to know about the Zarpy is they never skip leg day. <laughs> <laughs> And the other thing about the Zarbi is that my dog was very concerned anytime they made noise. Yeah, the the <laughs> the, the noise of the Zarbi. Yeah, that was. It's yeah. Would I was thinking about that while watching. Like this is probably going to set off like any animal that's watching this in the same room. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I forget who it was. I think it might have been. Sherman and uh, Haydoak, but they compared the noise to a car alarm. Yeah, that's that's mm. I would I would agree with that. You it know, very uh, much reminded me of an old video game console, like you know Atari or a, a ColecoVision or something like that. <laughs> something in eight bit. Yeah, if that. <laughs> Going back just. Briefly to Vicky and, and the medication, I really loved how her reaction to the medication, because it was a really stark reminder that she is from our future, which kind of got glossed over mostly in the Romans. And so here we have a very visceral reaction to aspirin. And some delightful sass from Barbara. Yeah. <laughs> well, I also find it interesting because why would the doctor have aspirin when it's known that he's not from Earth, so it's just like, well, didn't he have anything else? And he keeps it, it's like, oh, cute, you have a first aid kit, but it's in no sort of order at all. Doctor, what are you doing? I mean, it's clearly just cobbled together from things he's picked up on in all the places he's been to, so. It's probably expired, let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I really enjoyed here was the actual cut back to the Romans, where Barbara is still wearing the bangle that Nero gave her. So even though they've all changed and Nero basically sexually harassed her all through the last story, she's keeping this little memento this absolute douche gave her. Hey, that it was expensive. And it reminds her of that time where she and Ian finally, finally hooked up. Uh, yeah, I suppose that's fair. As we reach the end of this episode, I think we have a first in that all four characters have their own separate mini cliffhangers. I don't really recall any the the main crew being split up like that before and everyone being in peril at the same time. Was the doctor in peril? I don't yeah. think the doctor was in peril, but it had he was the closing shot. He saw the TARDIS was missing. That's right. Yeah. Yes. That's pretty perilous. So one thing I'm going to come back to multiple times on this uh, discussion is how the first season of Revived Doctor Who refers back to this story. The first time we get a cliffhanger in in Revived Doctor Who is in Aliens of London, where after waiting four episodes for a cliffhanger, we also get, like, it's either a three-in-one or a four-in-one, where different characters have different cliffhangers at the same time. And, And given the number of other references explicitly to this story in series one, I don't think that's a coincidence. Just shows you how how influential this uh, serial is. Or that Russell T. Davies is a raging fanboy. Maybe. 
On to episode two. The, the Zarbi. Zarbi. Don, keep Riley's The Zarbi, because it's better than that. that. That's because he is a Zarbi girl living in a Zarbi world. <laughs> <laughs> Vicky is such a refreshing change in how she handles everything that's unfolding around her. Imagine what this would have been like if instead of Vicky dealing with this, it was Susan. It's a lot of screaming. I think she would have lost her damn mind. <laughs> if this was Susan, my rating at the end of this would have gone down by at least two points. We love you, Susan, but... We don't like your writers because they suck. <laughs> yeah. One of the things I noticed, there is a shot with the doctor and his hand was shaking quite a bit. I know that there are some things where... Some of the stuff that the doctor does is purposely done by the actor, and some of it is, you know, just him himself. Is that something that we know that he was purposely playing? Nothing I have read indicates that it was part of purposely the act. Purposely done. But okay. equally, I don't think every instance is necessarily documented, so it could go either mm -hmm. way. Uh, I think with, with Billy, you just never know what he's doing. Like, whether it's his acting or whether it's him starting to get sick. Which, you know, we'll obviously come back yeah. to as we progress through his era. Because it becomes more and more obvious as we go along. But I don't know at this point. So, we talked a lot in the first episode about the costumes. And it's something I feel we get even more exposure to here. Because, <laughs> A, the Doctor and Ian remove those wonderful protect protective jackets, which... I was really disappointed at because I loved the notion that they needed them. And then B, we meet the Minoptera, who I think are glorious. <laughs> Absolutely glorious. We, um, sure. We'll, we'll go with that. If you're into and that kind of onesie, sure. <laughs> and the thing with the, the hair, uh, the, okay. The voice, the, oh. the, mm. the hand gestures, the arm movements. I think that was done as a like a sense of like how we know that bees can communicate by moving their bodies like jiggling or like body movement is how they can kind of communicate a language. I think that was something they were trying to do as if like this was a species that has evolved into this higher intelligent species based off of basically a moth. So they still will communicate inside them. They still can, you know, they still have a need to, or they're repressing a, a means of communicating that way instead of communicating verbally. Yeah, they did pull from several kinds of insects for that. I think that's why one of them actually got credit for insect movement in episode three or four. Rosalind De Winter, who was actually one of the Monoptera, and she was a professional dancer. So she was incorporating a lot of kind of dance, exaggerated dance stuff into that insect movement to really emphasize it. I honestly think it worked quite well. It, it, it gave them the impression of being really quite alien. It just feeds into the whole sense of this entire serial. This entire serial is unlike anything we have seen before on the show. And it just blows you away with just how foreign and strange it is. We've never really done something as strange as what is possible out there in the universe until until now. And I'm not sure we ever do again after this. I can but. think of one yeah. story that I think is weirder. Ooh. Maybe two. My vote for the weirdest is, is going to be the mind robber. Oh, yeah. I'm really looking forward to that. That's one of my favorites. I also found it interesting because we got a little bit more of a sense that the Doctor actually know things about the rest of the universe when he was like, oh, I think I know what planet we're on. And here is a background of what I know about this planet. And I was like, oh, 
the doctor knowing things finally great <laughs> that was that was a nice touch i i think he comes back to it because he talks about how it used to be a lot like earth mm-hmm. which left me thinking what the hell went wrong here <laughs> yeah he also made an interesting comment that history doesn't mean anything when you travel through space and time it's a good quote. It really is. It's it's a great quote, but it's just an interesting perspective because there's that idea that he, he knows things, but then he doesn't know things. And, and so I'm just like, well, what does that even mean? Well, I, I also think that really goes against what we heard in the Aztecs. So there was the whole, whole spiel about you can't change history, not one just, line. And now here he's saying history doesn't matter which was i believe my argument at the time of what is history to someone who can travel through all the time and space and what gives him the right to meddle in scaro in the far future but not in earth's past as he's saying that here that is indicative of the transition in the production staff with david whittaker a story editor having one idea of how history should work and dennis spooner having a different idea and I think we'll continue to mm -hmm. see changing attitudes to that as we go through the history of the show. The other thing that I'm getting tired of as being a trope is the one guy who doesn't trust them. Oh, yeah. And wants to kill them. Yeah, oh, I know. Oh, my God. must kill her. Come on. <laughs> I'm over it. It happens like every other serial. And I'm just, I'm done. And in this one, it happens more than once. We'll have to destroy anyone who kills Barbara. Oh, oh, hands down, obviously. Honestly, that entire conversation was not subtle. Are they actually surprised when she tries to run away after that? <laughs> like, we must kill her. She couldn't clearly hear this. Yeah. And then she knocks him down, which was awesome. It's like, why didn't you just kick his ass, Barbara? Try and kill me, will you? She's just magnificent. One thing before we move on to the next episode, the communication crystals the Monoptera have. Did anyone kind of think Krypton? I did. I thought first Superman movie. Yep. And then there was that hysterical Monoptera versus Zabi fight. Oh, that was poorly done. I know in Dalek Invasion of Earth, I was very critical of Richard Martin's studio-based scenes. What he did in that story on location was awesome. He's a really, really good location director. Studio, I was very critical, and I'm still critical with this story. I think he's terrible in the studio. So as we're wrapping up this episode, I found the Doctor's attempt at sign language to talk to the Zabi absolutely hilarious, because it's clear he's not getting across to them. Yeah, I, I, I thought he was demonstrating judo to them. It was very odd. And then at the end, we get the tube descending, and that very ethereal voice, Why do you come now? That is such a poor cliffhanger. Can we agree that the voice acting for the Animus uh, was really, really good? Probably my favorite part of this entire serial was the voice of the Animus. Uh, correction, guys. The Animus. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On to episode three, Escape to Danger. When it was mentioned that... Are you with the Monoptera? And I'm like, if, if you know anything about the Monoptera, like, the TARDIS crew does not have wings. I don't think she could see. I had that same feeling, but she said she could sense movement. But that was it. So I got the distinct impression there wasn't really a visual component to it. Just a sense that something new was there. 
so this is the the episode that I mentioned earlier where we get the Zabi running into the camera. I got the feeling they couldn't see very well uh, during the the fight between Ian and Zabi. I found it really funny because you could tell Ian is trying not to break the costume. <laughs> but th this this is an instance where they would have refilmed, but they didn't have the time because the production was so troubled. This is another point at which Russell T. Davies references this story because he's on record as having said there's that scene in The End of the World where the little spiders, one of them crashes into the camera as it's going through the ducts. He's on record as having said that's a reference to this story, which is kind of obscure, but equally bonkers. There's a scene where Ian, you know, he, he escapes and then one of the Minotra lands. And then when they cut back, it's just him and the Minotra just sort of hanging out on a cliff talking like they've known each other for a while. And <laughs> I actually had to rewind because I thought I'd missed something. I, I have no explanation other than Richard Martin. What I found interesting is the doctor through this entire episode is magnificent. He bluffs his way through this entire episode, and I absolutely love it. The red box he thing? Has, yeah, just, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, this astral map thing. I'm totally going to help you out with this. And, oh, by the way, I'm going to do all this other stuff. And, Ian, you need to go find Barbara. And, oh, you know, Zarby, like, you know, you actually need us. I'm totally working here. No, I'm not. It's just, it was great that he's just stalling for time this entire episode. And it's done in such a way that they just keep believing him. And that is, that's the doctor for me. He's just such a skilled negotiator in this. Another funny thing is that little communication device thing is totally a hairdryer i agree i couldn't figure if it was that or it was like a a, a you know a fixture around a, a lamp or something it's just i couldn't a, figure that it's out it's just a plastic tube they they painted some some webs on it's great so julie you mentioned the astral map so this is a piece of equipment that is in an alcove that we that is attached to the central console room, but we've never seen that alcove before. The astral map has never been seen before, and we'll never see it again. Oh, I know. Sorry. Yeah, it's almost like they made it up just for the plot. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> the prop looks good. The prop so, does look good. Yeah. But we, we get a number of things that we just are just kind of unique to this story, and that's one of them. Also, I found it fun. Somebody, I forget who, actually used Terran. I believe that was, at the time, a more recent term that was created in science fiction. I don't really recall it being used that often in Doctor Who. But again, I think that since that was something, I think, from like the 40s and 50s, I found it interesting that they actually used it. Something I found that I really liked about this particular episode is the Doctor at one point is talking about Ian who's going off and doing his own thing and he says he's very good at this sort of thing. You compare and contrast that to a year previous in the series history and you can just see the way the trust is built between these characters and how they've gone from barely liking each other to really feeling comfortable with each other and trusting each other. And we keep getting these little flashes of that 
And I think that's just wonderful. I, I agree completely. I mean, you're right. About a year ago, the doctor would have been absolutely willing and wanting to dump Ian off at an alien truck stop and abandon him there. <laughs> one thing I really picked up on this one was how cheap the Zabi look. So this is 1964. This is six years after Quatermass in the pit. And somehow the Zabi look even cheaper than the fossilized, mummified, or whatever they were, aliens in Quatermass in the pit. And just like, come on, guys, what's, what's, what's the excuse here? But I guess that's budget. So we end this episode with the Earth falling, or some Earth from above falling on Ian and the Monoptera. And that leads us into episode four. Cradle, a uh, crater <laughs> of needles. Man, cradle of needles is a much more awesome title. Yeah, that's it. Really is. So this is where we first, we in episode two, and we didn't really talk about it. That's where we saw one of the Monoptera having its wings bitten off by the Zabi, and I, I think this is the first time we see one of them without wings, and suddenly that costume just looks a lot less impressive. It's so sad. It's very sad. <laughs> yeah, I would say it's sad. I wouldn't say it's less impressive. There's there's actually quite a lot of sad moments in this serial. There are. Around this, though, is where Barbara has a really dumb moment. So she asks one of the Monoptera, Oh, hey, are your wings healed? And the Monoptera in question visibly doesn't have wings anymore. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't get that. Like... I think this is where maybe the design couldn't hold up to the writing. Like, maybe the wings, when they're retracted, are kind of hidden, or that's how it was written. But the design just can't do that. So, I think this story, this ep- this particular episode is where things start to get really, really weird. <laughs> yes. And kind of terrible. Uh, are we all thinking about the Optera on this? Yes. The Optra are not great, but that's not what we should be focusing on when we, when we like critique this episode. We should be focusing on the, the battle scene on the plateau. No, 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 no. <laughs> because if we focus on the battle scene, I have even worse uh, news for you, Riley. It's not pretty. Because I, 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 I like the Optra better than I like the battle scene. They're weird looking and stupid, and I love the way they talk. Yeah, the way they talk is is scattered and poetic, and it's I'm like, you guys were actually really trying something with this serial. And it's so much better than the hand movements that the Monoptra have, and if you actually think about their story, it is so much sadder, and it it has a lot more meaning and depth, and then the fight scene was just kind of poorly done. Is it is it this episode or the next one where the Optra start talking about making mouths in the wall? It's the next one, which also has, yes. I think, the scene that Riley was talking about as far as where it gets kind of dark. I love that way they talk in metaphors, and they talk about making mouths in the wall, and they they and and then it will speak more light. What what I find, and maybe I'm thinking too esoterically, but in a lot of esoteric schools of thought, light is often a metaphor for knowledge. Through episodes four and five, I got the impression that Optera were effectively the, the grubs of the Monoptera, which eventually turns out not to be the case. 
But I read this as a kind of synonym around the path to, to maturity and adulthood. So as they gain more knowledge, they move towards the light on the surface of the planet. They're growing up. Ultimately, I was disappointed when it just turned out that that the Optera will never reach maturity, but their children will, I think, is the line in episode six. That is the line. I mean, I thought that was the, the indication was that when the Monoptera had to leave the planet, the, the grubs, like the Optera, were their kind of children or but since they had to leave the normal course of life the life cycle of that species got halted and turned into a separate species i'm just also hoping that they're not being too literal about when they're saying they're children because if they're being literal i'm sorry but that's not how evolution works i I think they were being a little bit (laughs) metaphorical At, at the end of the day i was a little disappointed that that journey into the light and and the receipt of knowledge isn't really where it was going i was really reading i think too much into it so heading back to the episode we were actually talking about it sounds like we might have some controversy over the fight scene let's take into consideration i mean how many episodes of doctor who were produced in this season should we take into consideration that the director is not very good with this kind of stuff yeah that I don't know what people were imagining in their minds of what they were expecting, but when you see for the previous three episodes of the costumes they have to deal with, and we have the knowledge of the rush shootings... And you don't have a fight scene. You just avoid it. You don't have a fight scene. The weapons make no sense, and I hate this contrived notion that they had these weapons, they were ready to fight, and oh, all of a sudden, those weapons don't work against them. Oh, that was really, you know, helpful in order to make this fight scene actually work. So it's just like one of those things where I'm like, you could have come up with some other plot device that was like, oh, well, the weapons still worked, but there's just so many of them or something more to it than just, oh, hey, look, the weapons don't work. So we're just going to get overrun by the Zarbi. Oh, that really sucks. I think that the, one of the reasons that the weapons do not work is, one, I think it's supposed to make a statement about the Monoptera and that they're not very good at fighting. And two, I think it builds up a slight bit of suspense as to whether the, and I'm saying this intentionally wrong because that's how they did it on the show, the isotope. I think that is part of the reason why they did it that way for the fight scene is had it set up in that manner. Yeah, but- I mean, the larva, the larvae gun works and that was... That was kind of cool looking. The larvae gun, or the, the venom grub, as I think they're actually called, that's another way Series 1 loops into this, in that in Boomtown, Blonfell Foch, or, or Margaret Blaine, um, talks about venom grubs. They they call it a larvae gun in this, which I thought was weird, because it's a living yeah. creature. I think the production notes call it a venom grub. It is a much cooler name. That's just a... It's a plot device that's used. Don't like it. Don't like it when it's things like that. They could have come up with some other way to make that a more even battle. Yeah. It was a slaughter, and that's not fun. I I don't like it. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a fan. I mean, I, I mean, I, mean, I was dreaming for the Monoptera. It's just visually, obviously, they're on wires. Swooping in to get that kind of look for a, a very underfunded television show in 1965... Even with Star Trek, I cannot think of them. When I think of the fight scenes from that, I cannot think of any that involved anyone trying to attempt any of that wire work. 
and I could I could admire that, but then when you can't die and make it seem like you're actually dying and it just is really bad fake dying when that requires no wires and just requires good acting skills, I'll just leave it there. So the fight scene leads into the cliffhanger. So we're on to episode five, which Riley is entitled Invasion. One of the first things I noticed and and I think as I've made fairly clear in previous episodes, I grew up on Doctor Who and I grew up on Doctor Who on VHS and a lot of the black and white era was released completely unrestored and looked just terrible. And the filter on this particular episode, which I felt was blurrier than previously, really reminded me of watching any black and white story in like 1993 before they cleaned them up. That gives... I think everyone an idea of watching this stuff in the early 90s, how it all looked. And I dread to think having that additional unrestored effect on this, this must have been unwatchable. And this was one of the first stories they released on VHS. You wonder if this was one of the first they released on VHS because the very first episode of the serial happened to be the most watched Who episode of the 1960s. I believe they released the Daleks and the Dalek Invasion of Earth from Hartnell's tenure before this. I think this was the third from the Hartnell era. I think the War Games came out before this, and and there were several Baker and Pertwee ones that came out before this. I think this got released in the early 90s just because it was complete and it was there. On to the episode. Vicky is very useful and very smart in this episode, and it's refreshing. I just found that fantastic she does great zombie work in this and fake zombie work when she kind (laughs) of opens one eye i love that entire scene so we we haven't really talked about the gold collars and their effects on people as soon as it's put on it enables them to be possessed by the animus and vicky's not because the doctor's messed around with it and she's wonderful and then she gets another pet she really just wants a pet. But did anyone uh, catch a doctor not, not too respectful of the Zarbri uh, race when he re- makes comment to Vicky that if we lose them, there's about 200 or more up ahead just like that. So don't worry about well, it. Well, they're basically animals. They're, they're just cattle, basically. They're not intelligent like the Monoptera or even the Optera are. I was going to say the only reason they're an enemy at this point is because they're being possessed by the Animus. And after that, they're, they're perfectly docile and friendly, so... I was just going to say, this is where we get that kind of heartbreaking scene with the Optra, where they're, they're yeah. breaking oh. through, and it turns out it's, it's releasing acid, and one of them blocks the acid with its body. And then you just leave Ian standing there next to this, this dead Optra. I think it could have been even more heartbreaking if it had been framed a little bit better. I mean, specifically, I, I think it's meant to imply that she shoves her head in the hole to stop it. Like you said, it's, it's the head, which makes it even more gruesome, which for some reason makes it more dramatic. Speaking of the Optra, I mean, uh, this was where I started to find that their growly voices, combined with their very childlike way of speaking, it, they just seemed really ridiculous to me. Are you, are you referring to the fact that the poor actors and the costumes had to hop around like they were in a, like in a sack in order to move? Like I said, they were one of my favorite and one of my least favorite things about this at the exact same time. 
in this episode, as I mentioned previously, we had another round of, oh, well, we don't trust you. And it's like, one, you don't know Babs. Listen to Babs. Always listen to her. And, and two, like, as soon as they say, well, we don't trust her, and then it immediately turns around and it's like, oh, well, we're going to do what you tell us to. And I'm like, you just said you don't trust. What is happening right now? It's It's a little padded. Honestly, I think they could have done this this in three or four episodes, but they spent a lot of money on sets and costumes. So they 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 tried to make it stretch out. One thing I found that honestly I thought was fairly almost lazy was they talk about the animus setting up at the center, and God, I just said animus instead <laughs> of animus. I'm I'm turning into a monoptra, guys. Um, <laughs> They call it the carcinome, and they're going to use the isoptope to destroy it. Do we have any understanding of why they call it the isoptope? Well, because Vortis is in the isop galaxy. Ah. That's mentioned, I think, in episode one. Incidentally, the isop galaxy, the face of Bo, is the oldest entity (gasps) from the isop galaxy. Whoa. Oh, no! Mentioned in series one. That's where it ties in again. So Russell T. Davies is a web planet fanboy. But I thought the language of cancer and radiotherapy here is really not subtle. No, no, not terribly. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. The other thing I really wanted to bring up here is the lead Monoptera from the Invasion Force is played by Martin Jarvis, who A, will go on to become a massive household name, in later days we actually got him very much at the beginning of his career but he'll go on to be in things like the palaces the foresight saga lovejoy murder she wrote stargate atlantis <laughs> eastenders the girl with the dragon tattoo mass effect 3 <laughs> batman arkham origins and batman arkham knight and Law and Order UK before he comes back to Doctor Who to be in one of the Big Finish audios. So he's had a huge career. And I think I missed out Wreck-It Ralph. He's in that as well as a voice actor. So he's hugely distinguished and we get him here. They apparently had to trick him into doing it. So they didn't <laughs> tell him he would be in a costume. And he's rocked up and he's just like, well, he's the only good one. And he's just clearly ignoring the director and the Monoptra movement person. And it's just like, I'm just going to do my own thing. This is dumb. He's magnificent. <laughs> I knew I liked that. So we end this story with a weird tentacle protruding out of wall that sprays something white over the Doctor and Dick. Why did Please you have to go and ruin that? that? <laughs> <laughs> the episode ends with a creepy looking protrusion out of a wall shooting a web over Vicky and the Doctor. Episode six, the center. All right. So very quickly, the doctor and Vicky like can start moving again. So they weren't really hindered all that much by the web. Vicky immediately is trying to like get out of the way of all the hubbub. And I'm like, good job, Vicky. Get out of there. (laughs) But that's when she makes the fatal or almost fatal mistake. That's when the writer makes a fatal mistake that kind of pissed me off when I watched it. I I agree with I agree with you on that. I don't yes. I I feel like that was completely unnecessary. Could have had her carry the isoptope into the lair and then be just disarmed so to speak by the by the the light of the animus 
and then that's when Barbara shows up, or you know, and so on and so forth. But yeah. there's no reason for her yes. to hide it within the, the astral. Yes, map. there's no point of that. It's not even that. It's also well, yes, I love Babs. Babs does nothing wrong. Why not just let Vicky be the one? Like, you know, she could have gotten blinded, but you know, maybe she still picks up the isotope because let Vicky do something have for a moment. Yes. But, but let her speaking have a of moment. moments. That little, I'm going to hide it here for no reason, that wasn't what pissed me off the most about this episode. It was the Monoptera and Barbara running through yelling, Zarby! Zarby! <laughs> and in one case, Barbara, Barbara, Barbara! What? <laughs> I mean, honestly, when you when you really thought this ep- this entire story couldn't get any bloody weirder, we get that. I don't know why that was added. It has no setup beforehand. Is it a war cry? Is it a actual sonic attack or sonic disruption? Don't know. And it's really weird because they talked about this plan, I think, in the previous episode. And yes. then when they're actually doing it, it makes no sense to nope. me. Nothing that you said before is happening <laughs> right now. Why? <laughs> this entire episode for me is where everything really falls apart. I mean, regardless of how weird and crazy this story has been, we, we start seeing things that just make no absolutely no sense. I'm going to kind of rant a little here, so I apologize. The Animus wants to take humanity's mastery of space, but it's not native to Vortis, so how the hell did it get there? But also, Earthmen do not have a mastery of space! It's almost like they're just making this up as they go along. So, we have this thing where it's saying that it wants Earth Earthmen's mastery of space, which we don't have, so it's just batshit crazy fine um i love that they show barbara knowing how to work the astral machine thing that was great i'm like oh man like she's actually learned a few things while she's been on the tardis and that means that the doctor has taught her these things which i think is wonderful great job there the animus believes that humans have a mastery of space because the animus is a primitive animal evil that has some intelligence, but not intelligence enough to realize the doctor isn't human, but has enough intelligence to realize the doctor has a mastery of space. So she's conf- in the animus, which I'm calling a she because it has a feminine voice, which I don't know if it is or not, is confusing the doctor as a human being. And the doctor has a mastery of space, so that's why the animus thinks humans have a mastery of space. So, the, the, but the animus still thought that they were monoptera, so I don't and know. The, and the where animus also humans, came so. from space already. In the extended media, there are two books that basically turn the Animus into a Lovecraftian entity. It's considered okay. to be one of the great old ones, uh, called a, a Loigor, I believe, that existed before time. Oh, God. And it's Lovecraftian. Yeah, it, Lovecraftian enough without trying to shoehorn it in. Oh, it goes, yeah, I mean, it, it really I'm gets crazy. I'm calling fan wank and okay, ignoring Anthony. it. Okay, Anthony. Bad wank. <laughs> okay, so Barbara has found the isotope because she knows how to work the machine. Check. A wild Ian appears when they're <laughs> all in 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 this in the place. And somewhat effective. And Barbara's thinking that she wasn't effective, and then we find out that she was. And it dies. She had to try twice to kill it. Yeah, they get together, they leave. Boom done. 
I have one last thing. So the doctor seemed very attached to the ring that he was wearing because he kept saying that he's like, you need to promise to give this back with your life. You need this ring. Does it have any importance later or just in this serial? It never has importance again. No! It's never had powers before and will never have powers after this. It got the this. door open earlier in the serial in a moment that that really would have, if this, if this were a modern day story, it would have been done by a sonic screwdriver. I thought the gold, I thought the ring had significance and power because the ring was probably gold, and that a lot of the elements in the power of like how the animus would move things around, especially with the the yoke, was based off of gold. Yes, and that was fine for this episode, but since the doctor was so adamant that he needed it back, that I felt like he had some other sort of attachment to this ring, like maybe it's a time lord thing, or maybe it was like something from his, you know you know ancestor or something just something more than just oh no i i just need this ring back so as as we get towards the end of this we the tardis crew leave and we get that really weird final scene that is just so badly composed like it's just so busy so crowded it has the minotra the optra the zabi and the venom grubs all in one scene together, just filling up the entire screen. Well, that's what you do at the end of your high school play. You get everyone else out on on the stage. I mean, it, it really reminds me, if, if you guys think back to the Dalek invasion of Earth, there was that episode that culminated in the attack on the Dalek saucer. And you can't really understand a damn thing that's going on because it's so incompetently directed by Richard Martin. And to me, that's just what's going on here. It's Richard Martin once again saying, I'm going to throw the damn kitchen sink at this. Ugh. So, with everyone having gone quiet at the end of my rant, I believe that wraps up our discussion of the story. So this is one of the most experimental stories we ever get. I was kind of curious, does... Was this a worthy diversion, or would you rather see something a bit more linear? I appreciate them having the guts to go weird. The execution may not have been perfect, and I'm not going to trash it like we've done to another serial that's one of Riley's favorites. (laughs) They didn't nail the landing, but I I like the fact that Doctor Who can pretty much be anything it wants. It can reinvent itself from serial to serial, and that's the strength of the show. I will probably agree with that. Again, not to reference that other episode, but at least this one kept pace for the most part. And again, it might not have been in my style. Again, I tend to like the period pieces, but I could see why they went this direction, and I think they learned from it and why they might not have gone quite as far in you know later serials and later years i think it was something that they needed to do in order to push the boundary don and julie make good points uh i think that we need to keep our perspective on the budgetary limitations that they had and the fact that for a television show for them to try for something like this is something that's incredibly laudable and that the fact that they weren't able to execute as well as they as well as we think they should is probably painted by our uh, sense of what 
to what we expect from sci-fi. You're assuming my criticisms are based on the visuals, <laughs> and they're not. Second that. Second that. <laughs> so from from my perspective, if they were going to make a big budget movie starring the main cast of any story in the Hartnell era that was an hour and a half in length, so cut this down to between three and four episodes with 10 to 15 times the budget, this is the story I would most want to see because I would like to see something this weird done well. I agree completely. Yeah, with rewrites, absolutely. All right. So with that, let's move on to our metrics. So we start with the Ian murder count. I don't think he, I, I think he's quite restrained in this one. He I... got very upset when one of the other ones died. So, yeah. The camp count, well, this is absurdly camp, the entire story. <laughs> I think, you know, I think I need to put a cap on this. <laughs> so we're going to give this, in, in my view, a max of 10. <laughs> Which I think previously this season we had given one to Nero for his general over-the-top attitude. So th that brings season two up to 11. Mostly thanks to this story. Did Barbara murder anyone? No, she she kicked him an opera uh, butt. She murdered the animals. She did. That's oh. true. So Barbara murder count is up to two. And and finally, the Vicky naming a pet count. This was number two. Number two. Let's move into voting. I'm going to start this one because it's been a while. My personal opinion is this is a story that was hugely ambitious couldn't match that in fact even the director is quoted as saying that the story wasn't expensive enough and those sets should have cost millions and they probably only cost hundreds and i thought they were awful and that's in the words of the director <sighs> i liked what they were trying to do i could appreciate what they were trying to do for me this this failed in execution not in concept and i'm going to give this Seven wall tentacles out of ten. Let's go with, with uh, Riley next, since his is going to probably be the best. Like I said before, it's a bold and original concept. They went for it. Did they execute it as well as we expected them to? No. With what they were constrained with, their resources, they probably couldn't. I think that it is one of the most interesting and imaginative Doctor Who, early Doctor Who episodes. And for that, it should be applauded. And that I would take an episode like this that aims for something really original and new uh, and does not necessarily and does not hit on all marks than a historical episode that just kind of slumbers around into some sort of mediocrity. So I'll give this nine out of 10 Cole Hill school ties. Julie? A lot of my difficulties with this serial is not in regards to you know prop design or execution because i understand those limitations that has never been a problem for me i love old black and white like you know there's some hitchcock where they it's not as believable but i enjoy those films my problem is these contrivances in the plot things that are done just for the sake of, oh, this makes it easier to push the story in the direction that I want as opposed to something that's believable. 
and I just, I could not really get into it. The animal, the Zarby noises just grated on me. My dog barked half the time because he just couldn't stand it. And I just was not a fan. But I will say it's better than the Sensorites. So I'm going to give it five Doctor Rings out of ten. All right. And then Don. I find myself in the interesting position of agreeing with both people who are almost diametrically opposed (laughs) on this serial. (laughs) My issues with it are not with the props or the set design. I kind of like the fact that they're cheesy and weird and bizarre looking. My issues are like like Julie said, with the contrivances, with the stuff that stretches things out. But I really enjoy the fact that they went weird just for the sake of being weird. And because of that, and once again, Anthony, I would like to apologize for what this is going to do to your Excel spreadsheet in regards to our scores. <laughs> when, I, when I think of this serial, I just think, that's number wang. <laughs> And that is my score. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to put number wang in the spreadsheet yes. and try and quantify number wang. <laughs> yes, you are. So, I mean, we've had far worse than this. On that note, we will be back next time with The Crusade. We hope to see you then. Thank you for listening and have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Julie Philippek, Riley Shrek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Zabi Never Skip Leg Day, was recorded on Thursday, June the 13th, 2019. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watchers4D. You can also email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a review on your preferred podcasting app. And always remember the sagest of advice from this story, Zabi.